The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we are coming to you from the beautiful studios of WWDB AM860 here in Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And we'll be back with our first segment guest, David Griffith, the Executive Director of the Episcopal Community Services here in Greater Philadelphia. And we'll do so right after these messages or this word from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in Together Transforming the Experience of Aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome to our first segment today of Boomer Generation Radio, uh, again coming to you from WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia, WWDBAM.com. We're streaming live. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And again, a reminder that all of our shows are archived and podcasted on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. David Griffith, welcome back, Executive Director of Episcopal Community Services here in Philadelphia. Welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again, sir. Richard, it's uh, it's great to be back with you. Thanks for the invite. Well, we have lots to talk about. Um, you're very busy. We were talking about some of this before we went on the air. Uh, first of all, let's, let's just review. Episcopal Community Services, um, what's your mandate? What's your charge? The, the mandate... Uh, Richard is to challenge poverty and to very and to challenge poverty in the region and more specifically to challenge intergenerational economic poverty. Uh, we believe that there is a set of processes and protocols that if they're done well, uh, we can lift people up and out of poverty. So we're reading now that the poverty level in the United States has gone down. Uh, are you seeing that, or is this that? Uh, I think one needs to be thoughtful about how you measure poverty. Yeah, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, no, fair, fair enough. You know, you got to remember the the measure for a family of four is uh, twenty two thousand nine hundred dollars or so. That has not been adjusted since the seventies. Wow. So if it was adjusted, I suspect that the number would be uh, substantially more. Uh, and remember, that is uh, an economic number that doesn't count benefits um, or, or other programs like SNAPs. Uh, certainly doesn't count uh, medical care and the benefits that come from that. So I, you know, the number has been 15 percent. It's been 15 percent nationally for a long time. Uh, I suspect when you get underneath that, you're going to find there is uh, there's the definition of poverty. And then there's working poor and those issues and quality of life. It, it gets pretty, pretty scary. In Philadelphia, mm-hmm. our region, uh, we're still 26, 28% poverty really? level defined. Uh, and the scary part of that number is that over half of that population, uh, 
exists in what they call deep poverty, which would be half of that level. And is this so, regionally or just within the confines with, of the city itself? Within, within the confines of Philadelphia. But if you add the five-county region, right. obviously we'd be, be substantially above the national average. And is this intergenerational? Is there one segment of the age range of that is, to put it bluntly, as poorer than the other? Is this really multi-generational? It, it is clearly intergenerational, and you know there is a number of different ways to measure. Um, but we are seeing fourth and fifth generation poverty when we go back and we work in the communities where we work. Um, it is clearly impacting young people in a way that is extraordinary uh, here in the city. Um, there's a lot of programs at work, but again, uh, you've heard me use the term in the past, the algebra is pretty daunting. Right, right. So, so I mean, the, the services that you provide, just give me a, a, flavor. a, a, a little list, you know, the top five, yeah. let's just say, that what you do to get into the community to help, as you say, lift people up. Yeah, well, the, the the data and the research on working with with individuals and families and community that are experiencing chronic poverty, um, the 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 social work term is a theory of change, mm-hmm. um, and that is is there certain programs that you can reasonably expect an impact, and in our world, that's housing, mm-hmm. both emergency and permanent supportive housing. There is a, a significant trend to move people from emergency housing into a more permanent setting. Nobody gets well in shelter, but sometimes that's the alternative and where you need to be. So housing, clearly educational enrichment. Um, we know that in certain communities, the school system is clearly overtaxed and overburdened, so anything we can do, uh, to do work in educational enrichment. Our focus happens to be 5 to 13. There's lots of data on early childhood education. Right. We don't do that. There's other people who do that better than we do. Workforce development. What does that mean? It means giving young people and young adults the skills uh, to compete in the workforce in many cases is just simply awareness and fundamental skill building. Uh, we know that there are hard skills for a job, but just as important are the soft skills for a job, whether that's uh, how to be on time, uh, how to behave in a supervisor's setting, uh, how to react to the crises that come up day to day, um, the data will show soft skills in many ways are a barrier, things that uh, you and I would have been taught by perhaps our parents or a mentor just don't exist. The the other major area is really two more is wellness, both in terms of what you eat and how you behave and how you exercise, uh, and then clearly financial and we in, internally we call it money. Um, and it's it's blunt, but frankly, we know that there are certain things we can do with some of our funds that if we get and intervene early, they can avoid major expenses downstream. A good example is if we help somebody with a power bill or we help them stay in their house, uh, the rough costs of shelter and the system 
can be a hundred thousand a year when mm. you get all said and done. So if we can, with early intervention, help folks and keep them going. So housing, educational enrichment, workforce development, wellness, and then financial assistance. Uh, and our programs all fall into those buckets. And just because our major focus here is really on baby boomers and our and the generation above it, but also the family system, what impact is this? Uh, what, uh, since you're dealing, you, you said with multi generational poverty issues, with with boomers in this um, in this cycle and other older adults who must be trapped. I mean, really trapped in this cycle of poverty. Uh, well, there's no question, and and there is a tremendous amount of of dollars and energy spent on what I would call maintenance. Um, and, and you know, the euphemism has always been safety net programs, um, and they really are designed to maintain. And, and look, keeping people alive, keeping people fed, uh, getting people medical care when they literally don't have any other means, those are all very worthwhile and meaningful. But if you want to deal with the fundamental issues of intergenerational economic poverty, frankly, the way out of poverty is employment. Right. And uh, long term, we need to deal with that. Um, there's 28 percent of the population in Philly that are not major consumers. They're not uh, employed for the most part or they are employed. It's in the working poor scenario and it's part time and it's not enough hours for benefits. Um, and it becomes a very, very vicious cycle, and nobody wants to be in poverty. You know, what I get really frustrated with is this urban myth that poverty is is a vacation. Uh, I hear that when I go out and speak to what, certain groups. What does that mean? You know, this notion that, well, you know, you, you have benefits, you, you're, you're getting paid by the government, I had one individual I remember. I wish I had a free cell phone. You know, it's, uh, and there are programs to provide communications. Well, how do you get a job if nobody can reach you? So there's this, this attitudinal thing that we, we have and we face in our society that poverty is off on the side. And if it doesn't impact me, I just assume not pay attention to it. Poverty will consume us as a society if we don't deal with it. Um, a large part of our work, frankly, is in the advocacy area and, and trying to drive changes in public policy and private practice. And at the end of the day, I think that's where it has to occur. So when you say advocacy, are you, do you mean lobbying for increased legislation or changes in legislation? Or I, I think public policy is is clearly driven by legislation, and I think there needs to be changes in the way government spends money, where it focuses, what it says is important. Um, there is a lot of waste in the system, not just in, in this sector, um, but but it clearly needs to be spent on those things that have impact and have impact the ability to lift folks up and out. Um, and there's some great examples of that. HUD right now at the federal level is making a shift away from shelter as their primary focus and trying to move people into housing uh, quicker. In Philly, we're probably 100,000 units of low-income housing light. Liz Hirsch and her team are doing good work on that. 
But the reality is if you move people into a housing situation as a family, the odds for success go up tremendously. Shelter, not a great environment. Sometimes it's all you got. But there's a great example where public policy and shifting money could have a huge impact. And if you think about if we built substantial housing here in Philadelphia, who's going to do that? Well, that provides jobs. It provides the opportunity to train people. And public policy, as much as changing where it's spent but coordinating how it's spent, I think and we think can have a tremendous impact. Um, There is lots of opportunity for infrastructure here in the city. Uh, Frankly, those jobs ought to stay here in the city and and be offered an opportunity for our young people. And, And that's where public policy, I think, needs to spend our tax dollars wisely to have impact. Um, there can be secondary and effects of, of, of policy if it's spent wise. I think we need to think those things through a lot clearer. And frankly, we got to have people who are willing to compromise in the middle, and that's a whole different show. Well, I mean, the, the reality is, in your experience as the director of, of the Episcopal Community Services, you see the political process just taking a look at this 20-some percent of poverty in our area and just ignoring it. I mean, it's just either through prejudice or or just it's too much or just gridlock. I I think gridlock, I I, I don't think it's ignored. I think it's acknowledged. I just don't think we are doing enough or what we are doing is not effective. Let me be very clear. There's, There's people in the city who are doing tremendous work. The issue is it's not coordinated. Uh, it's not as efficient as it could be. Um, and it needs to be directed so that it's a coordinated spend and it's not just one individual here and then you got to go to a different agency here and then a different program here. The, the bureaucracy is, is daunting. If, if you were in charge, would you create a poverty czar? Some Absolutely. We're speaking with David Griffith, the executive director of Episcopal Community Services here in Greater Philadelphia, and we'll be right back to just shift gears a little bit um, on this discussion right after this word from Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. We're with David Griffith, the Executive Director of the Episcopal Community Services, talking about uh, how they impact um, this cycle of poverty in greater Philadelphia, which is, on, as David has pointed out, is really a national issue and challenge poverty and attempt to lift people up. Um, I want to ask you a question also about um, the shift that seems to be going on in the country, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, about um, Leadership and organizations in nonprofit organizations that have dedicated perhaps to doing good deeds to for-profit organizations. And 
in leadership and uh, and the vision of what happens when a when an organization moves from a nonprofit to a profit. Could you just could you just yeah. because it, there seems to be a trend, and given the fact that you've just outlined such a crucial need around the country. There'll probably people will saying, turn this over to the private sector, the for profit companies, let them invest in this and the problem will be solved. I, I if only it were that simple. If, sure, well, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, the the issue I think in many ways is I think the private sector has the ability, if it is given incentives to provide employment and to provide equal access to opportunity for individuals that are experiencing poverty. Those individuals obviously need housing and and education and job skills and the wherewithal to be able to uh, participate in in the employment cycle. That being said, um, I I do think there is a trend in, in nonprofits to shift their focus. I mean, as you know, I came out of business mm-hmm. and the, the, I get asked a lot, you know, what's the, what's the major difference between for profit and nonprofit? Um, and, and my answer fairly crisply is there, 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 there isn't difference. Um, the same discipline to budgets to product to outcomes to impacts the clients served uh, I would argue is is uh, identical and and I think that's a that's a trend you're going to see uh, more and more and more where the professionals who do this work and you know the governance and the professionalism uh, I think there's there's a real good opportunity to marry those two you, you alluded to something it just occurred to me you know when you're talking do you see younger people going into this field, uh, given the challenge, the overwhelming challenges? I mean, this oh, I, is. Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And frankly, I mean, if there's one thing that I get up in the morning and I, I take comfort in is most of my staff is between 25 and 35. Um, most of them have masters from social work uh, institutions. Um, and I meet volunteers every day that are young people. And frankly, it's, it's a tremendous intergenerational opportunity because I see, in our case, parishes with young people, families, and, and older folks coming together and doing projects together, doing volunteer work. Um, and I take real hope that people understand that this is an issue that, that, that needs to be dealt with that way. My frustration is it's just not enough folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe public policy can incent that. Um, I believe, frankly, volunteering in this kind of work is a huge leverage point. I mean, a, a great example of leverage we have is in, in order to get your master's in social work, you, you need a 1,000 hours of supervision. Right. So we have interns. Um, we're very intentional in our use of interns. We put them to work. Um, we also then help them with employment when they come out, either with us or with another agency. Um, but they're young people who are very much focused on working these issues and, and, and actually specific segments of this issue, um, whether it's people who are returning to the workforce from prison, 
um, father-friendly initiatives in this work, um, parenting, lot of a uh, lot of young people who will find themselves as parents early on and frankly they need they need mentoring and they need assistance um, so I, I I am very very hopeful for the generation that is is here and working um, but I think it, it would be a whole lot more effective if, if if that 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 scope expanded the relationship that communal services Episcopal community services has with with the diocese, the Episcopal diocese, the church, it, is it a, a, a complementary one? Is it you're an independent? Yeah, we, we are. We are uh, very clearly an independent organization, but we are very, very closely affiliated with the diocese of Pennsylvania. Um, I, for example, I, I was asked to participate in the search for the new bishop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to be Episcopalian. Most of my folks at ECS are not. Um, but it's uh, there's 135 parishes. A lot of our financial support comes from members of those congregations. Um, I have on my board, I have uh, the bishop and up to 10, 10 clergy. So it is a, a very tight affiliation. Our, our project in Darby, Darby Borough, is a joint project between us and the diocese. Uh, we mutually fund um, that project. Um, we frankly gave ourselves leverage um, by by coming together there, and we're feeding people. We're running a couple of out-of-school time programs, computer labs, workforce development programs, and, and that's done in, in very close collaboration and partnership. Um, but because of the way contracts with the government are structured there there's a need for some separation there and and that's probably appropriate um but we are very much we were founded 145 years ago and it is it has been a long historic relationship and that I, I don't see any way that that wouldn't continue you see the role of the faith communities not only episcopal faith communities but faith communities in general in playing an increasingly larger role in the eradication of poverty? I, I do because, uh, in the contrast, the faith-based alliance in Philadelphia is made up a number of, of, of organizations like us, Jewish Family Services, Lutheran Settlement House, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic Charities, um, and all of us have a focus not so much on maintenance but more on lifting up and lifting people out. Um, you know, in, in, in my tradition, our tradition, the baptismal covenant is to respect the dignity of every human being. And that's really the essence of, of lift up and lift out. I, I think given that tradition and given the relationships with respective congregations, temples, parishes, you find a body of people who are like-minded to do this work. And as I mentioned, the volunteer element in this space is really, really important. Most most religious organizations have a segment of community service or social service as part of their tradition. And frankly, our ability to tap into that is, is, is a huge lever. Um, now, that said, there's clearly community projects that, that work, um, and I, I think uh, that that cadre of people working together, we, we can be pretty effective. But it's, it has to be the private sector. It has to be people that, 
don't participate necessarily in a faith tradition, um, but it's very, very clear that, that that volunteer element is is a huge driver. Not so much for actual work, but also because we all vote, hmm. and the advocacy side on this thing is important to harness. Um, and, and at a fundamental level, that public policy has got to be where we, where we change things. That's where the big dollars and the big focus will come from. But it may be as simple as just empowering the private sector. So before we conclude this segment, I got just, just, the, the job seems overwhelming. <laughs> what brought you to this? What motivated you to do what you're doing? It's it's a call to service. Really, I mean, I uh, I've been involved in nonprofits my whole life, and when the opportunity opened up, um, it, I, I just viewed it as the stars aligning. Quite frankly, um, I retired at sixty, and I went to work two weeks <laughs> later, and uh, and so much for retirement. So, well, it's a dirty word. I'm, yeah, I I really dirty, do. Yeah. We, we we talked about this all the time. I I, I really. Um, I mean, you're living proof uh, that um, there's no just retirement's bad. You just continue no, to do what you're doing. Retirement's a bad thing, but uh, no, there's plenty to keep me busy. David Griffith, Executive Director of the Episcopal Community Services, here. Thank you very, very much for Thank joining you, us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. I wish you continued good luck. Thank you for being with us, and uh, to all of you, we'll be back with our second segment uh, right after our little musical break today, a little change of pace.
Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. Um, it's a good thing you weren't here. <laughs> Thank you to the people in the control room because we lost the phones. And Debbie Derman, who is our guest for our second segment. Um, Debbie, are you there? I sure am. Oh, thank thank whoever's in charge, the great technological <laughs> gods. Uh, I know, I was getting a little worried there. You were getting a little worried. I was about to yeah. just figure, well, here's a half an hour. I can do my analysis of the end of the Philly season or the Eagle season. Oh. Or if okay. really got stuck, I could do the analysis of last night's debate, but who cares? Um, well, you don't have enough time for that. No, no, no. No, no we don't. <laughs> Debbie Derman, uh, grief and bereavement yeah. counselor, a Ph.D. here in the greater Philadelphia area, operating out of Dresher, Pennsylvania. And um, I invited Debbie on because of the coverage of a very, very fascinating book that she uh, developed, um, Colors of Loss, Healing, Colors of Loss and Healing, an adult coloring book for getting through tough times. And... Um, First of all, Debbie, thank you for coming on Boomer Generation Radio. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. This is um, let's get right to it. A coloring book okay. to deal with grief. How come? Well, I actually got the idea from the patients that I see. Um, they started coming to me, telling me how they. Um, first of all, these are people that I see who have had significant losses. And they were the ones that were doing the coloring and telling me about the process and how calming it was and how healing it was. So I received a coloring book for my last birthday, which I am happy to tell you is on Christmas Day. And I got my first coloring book. And as I sat and I looked at all the little spaces, I thought, I'll never finish this. I'll never do it. This is too overwhelming. But I would pick up a pencil and color a space. And after a little while, it was really a light bulb moment. I said, this is exactly how I did it, how I've gotten through hard times, all of the losses that I've had, one small thing at a time. So I quickly wrote down what, in my opinion, are the themes that people really should be thinking about in healing from loss and I condensed my thoughts into single words and embedded them in illustrations and the coloring book was born and so those words are well there are a lot of words there are words like laugh belief hope resolve prioritize simplify those types of things it was important to me to not write a book that's already been written. There mm -hmm. are plenty of books about death and dying. There are plenty of, of ideas about getting through the first year. But my, I wanted to take a longer perspective on how a person heals, and I mean longer, like 
three, five, 10, 15 years out and look back and say, what are the things that we need to think about in order to recover or heal from a loss? And I've had plenty of losses. So. Yeah, your story, as, as in many people who do, who venture into this, I would assume, if I'm not mistaken, that um, part of the motivation and drive internally is your own journey. I think that's really true, and I think that, well, my new husband says I have a Ph.D. in school and a Ph.D. in life. So it's not enough to just have the life experiences. Why? Because you're only one person. You're a population of one. And we all know that that people don't need one person's view. But to go to school and to get a doctorate and to study and to do research gives you an academic perspective. So now I think that you have a balance between, yes, personal experience, but also professional knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to use the two together to make something that I hope is valuable. And it certainly seems to be resonating with people. It really does, so which the, I'm very happy about. Well, let's, let's, let's do the, the, the commercial, too. The coloring book okay. is available how or through or where or why? On Amazon. It's available on Amazon now, and I just did a second edition that will be out at the end of December. Oh. And that will be published by Rodale. So I have my first book was self-published and the second one goes through a real publisher. Oh, congratulations. That's that's really Thank cool. Thank you very much. Very exciting. What's the difference between uh, uh, edition two and edition one? Well, I've added some more explanation in the introduction about why I picked certain images. Mm-hmm. And I've added uh, a few more illustrations also. So the book again, Give me the give me the formal title. It's called Colors of Loss and Healing, an adult coloring book for getting through tough times. And it's Debbie Derman, which is D-E-R-M-A-N-P-H-D. Yes, yes, except we're, I put my real name, Deborah. Oh, okay. I thought that sounded a little more you official. Know, okay. Formal. There you go. <laughs> a little more gravitas. And, and, and available through the great God Amazon. Um, that is correct. <laughs> What about the what about books uh, Barnes and Noble and stuff like that? Yes. Uh, right now, Barnes and Noble, I believe, is selling it online. But online. you really need a real publisher to sell through Barnes and Noble. Oh, okay. But the book will be available in Barnes and Noble. Uh, the big grand release date is December twenty seventh. Okay, good, good. Right after mm-hmm. it's a birthday present for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So listen, the, the, this we've many of us. Um, have dealt with uh, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and those of us who are clergy people and you as a grief counselor, I would be willing to bet uh, would agree that um, that sounds nice, but grief is very personal, isn't it? It's very personal and I really hate to say this, but there are no fixed stages of grief. There just aren't. I think it's nice to feel that there are because it gives us a framework or maybe a roadmap. But when you're in it and you find out that that's not really happening, people can conclude that there's really something wrong with them, and there's not. And this five stages of grief, I remember getting a birthday card with the five stages of grief on it. A birthday card? Relating to birthdays. 
a birthday card. It's in every part of the culture, and it's really taken hold. And those of us in the field are just, of course, grateful that the topic of death and dying is out and discussed, but it doesn't really hold true in people's experiences. So do you get people in your private practice who come and say, you know, I've experienced this loss. It's been a year and a half, and I'm only at stage two. All the time. They say, Dr. Derman, looks like I'm just in denial now, but I know I'll get into bargaining soon. (laughs) And I just just say, well, you know, that just all sounds lovely, but let's talk about your reality and where you really are and how you're going to get through. And it's a whole different framework. Debbie, talk to me about the power of resilience and, and how you've experienced it and how your patients and clients, and where is it in this discussion? I think uh, resilience is very important, and quite honestly, I don't know if people are born with it or develop it. I'm, I'm not really sure, and I don't know if anybody's really sure about that. I can tell you a story, and the example is that um, after I lost my parents in an airplane crash, which happened up here in Wingsfield oh, yeah. in 1988, I lost, well, the, I was at the airport. I saw the crash. I was with my little boy who was 16 months old at the time. And their plane just went down and exploded into a big fire. And they, of course, died, I hope, immediately. Also, uh, their best friends on the plane died as well. So now my sister, brother, and I had to go back to Rochester, New York, which is where I'm from, go and clear out my parents' things. And we were all just incredibly traumatized. And as we were going through my parents' things, I remember looking in my dad's pockets, and I found all these tickets to the Eastman School of Music and their volunteer activities and the um, stubs from places they'd been. And I saw their beautiful little collection of paintings that they collected And I had this incredibly strong feeling that no matter how I felt at that moment, my parents were incredible people with a wonderful life, a very strong marriage, a very strong commitment to family. And I had a certain feeling that my life was going to be good too. Hmm. Now, nobody told me to feel that way. But I, it just emerged, and I would call that resilient, wouldn't you? Yeah. And not I, be beaten down. And I also, I, I've also, since we do a lot of this stuff around for my Jewish sacred aging work in the country, I've come to the belief that, that there is people, there are people who have a genetic proclivity for, and I may be using the wrong word, to look at the world in a certain way that engenders resilience and other people who, for a variety of reasons, their worldview shuts a lot of that resilient reaction off or modifies it. I, I think you're right, and I think it's really hard to really tease out that. However, for people that come to me, that come to me for grief counseling, you want to build that in them. You want to build the idea that no matter what has happened to you, you will find a way out. It will be generated from within you, and you will figure this out. What's, what's the role of faith in this? 
Because not every yeah. What, what, what's the role of faith? And and I'm sure people come to you distraught. They've lost their faith. How could God do this to me? You know, I'm a good person. I I spout whatever, whatever, whatever. What's the role of faith? How do you rebuild that? Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's very interesting because after 9-11, you, so you know I'm Jewish, but after 9-11, I did many years of work on Staten Island with families who uh, were firefighters. The firefighters had died in 9-11. Right, first responders, right. All of them, yes. Most were um, firefighters, some police. Not, that was the population on Staten Island that I worked with. And everyone was a very devout Catholic. And um, who knows, maybe I was the first Jewish person they ever met. I'm not really sure about that, but I bet it's true. And they said to me, Debbie, I know my husband is in a better place. I know that he is. And when I go to church, it's as though a little door opens in the ceiling of the cathedral or the church, and I know my husband is looking down upon Mm. me. And that was incredibly comforting to them, to everyone, except that they had this earthly, painful existence of the most intense loss that you can imagine. And so I'm not really so qualified to speak about faith other than to acknowledge when it's important to someone. It doesn't really take away the tasks at hand. Um, I had feelings like that. I know exactly what you mean. I remember thinking, oh, by the way, the first support, when I, I was widowed when I was in my late 30s, and I was expecting my third child at that time. I was about 12, 13 weeks along. I had a little boy almost five and a little boy almost three. And my first support group that I ever went to was at a local convent. And the person running the group was a woman named Sister Mary. And Sister Mary pressed a prayer card in my hand, which I've never seen a prayer card before, and said, I know that you don't have a mother and I will never have children. So if you will, will you let me be your mother hmm. while, I, while you need that? And I think that's the kind of gracious, beautiful faith that can come from anywhere that was so meaningful to me. So I don't know that I've answered your question very well, but I do find that faith is very important to many people but we still have to get through life here on Earth. We're speaking with Debbie Derman, Ph.D., the author of Colors of Loss and Healing, an adult coloring book for getting through tough times. Debbie is a, in practice of as a grief and bereavement counselor here in greater Philadelphia. We'll be back with Debbie to pursue something that just raised an interesting, interesting issue about isolation and relationships. And we'll do that right after this message from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. 
Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our second segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Uh, this is your host, Richard Address, and again, we're coming to you from WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live all over the known universe, I hope, at, uh, on <laughs> WWDBAM.com. And again, you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And just a reminder that these shows are archived as podcasts on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. Dabby Derman, grief counselor and bereavement counselor. Just before we left uh, for our uh, for our, our Kendall message, um, talking about faith and and the process of moving through the through grief, a, a personal journey for everyone. Debbie, what what is the role of the community in support? How much easier is it for a person to be held spiritually, emotionally by a community as they process through the grief? I think it's incredibly important. I think it's essential. And I think that what people need to understand is that recovering from a significant loss is something that really can take a lifetime. We're typically given a year, right? You get a year. You have your unveiling. You take the things off the mirrors. And now you're expected to be okay, except you're not. Right. And many people just go along with their lives and a person who is grieving can feel incredibly alone and incredibly isolated and how wonderful would it be to just have someone call just randomly not on not only on the big days holidays birthdays but just hey how you doing and i think that it's it's just so incredible and also i think we have to talk about loneliness I think loneliness is one of the most excruciatingly painful things that a person can go through after a loss. Um, and anything that we can do to alleviate that, I think, is very much appreciated. Is the grief different um, process in your practice and your experience for that uh, 90-year-old who perhaps has outlived family and friends as opposed to... And your story, someone in their 30s? I think that it is it is different, but I always think, you know, it's not a competition. It's not that one is worse, one is better. Maybe it's a little different if you are 90 years old and you've lived a full life. You know, it's kind of how we think life should, should be. You live to a ripe old age and then you die or then you're widowed. And it is very shocking to be 30 years old and to lose a husband. So there is that type of things are not flowing according to how we see life. But I don't think you can really underestimate or undervalue someone who's lost a partner um, that they've had for most of their adult lives. It's very, very difficult. i got to ask you this also question because as I go around uh, in our Jewish sacred aging work around the country, this mm-hmm. issue comes up now, sadly, on a very regular, regular basis. And I'm, I'm talking about people who are living, a, the, a spouse 
um, with Alzheimer's and dementia and go through, which can, as you know, can last years and years and years, and go through what one therapist described to me as anticipatory grief. In other words, they actually start the grieving process well before the person actually physically dies. Yeah, and there is such a thing. And I uh, work with a lot of people who have husbands or wives that have had sustained and lung illnesses, usually cancer, myeloma, things that are fatal. And the process of uh, being the caretaker, watching someone die is horrible. And then when death happens, it's still shocking. Right. So when I see these people that come into my office, I say to them, you've been grieving for many years. This didn't just happen with the death of whoever you love. You have been under a state of stress and exhaustion, uncertainty, and dashed hopes and wishes for a very long time. And that is adding to the anguish that you feel right now. I didn't have that. So my husband went uh, went out to play rugby one day and had a sudden heart attack in the middle of the game so and died on the field. Mm. So I didn't have the experience of watching someone die. As a matter of fact, um, just the way my life has gone is that most of the traumas that I've had or the losses that I've had have been very sudden and out of the blue. So there is no ability to even think about that I might lose someone. Um, and it... It, it's different, but it's not better or worse than anyone else. The, just well, before we start running out of time, there's so many things still. Yeah. That's I know. Su- that's sudden. The suddenness. I mean, as every clergy person that I know, including myself, has had to deal with this with families. The the vestigial anger. Um, how do you begin to walk a person through that? anger of this person just leaving quickly? Well, the first thing you do, you have to say to somebody is, you're allowed. You could be as angry as you want. Um, And that it's perfectly fine. So, imagine this. So, here I am, a young widow with a very large pregnant belly. One night in in March, my dog starts that, one night in March, the, um, the snow's coming down my heater breaks and both kids end up with the flu. So I had one little boy on one shoulder, one little boy on another. They're throwing up down my back and I stood in front of the thermostat and let me tell you, if my husband were to have come back at that moment, I would have killed him again. (laughs) That's how angry I was. Mm. So I get that. And I stood in front of that thermostat and said some very unkind things. Do I feel guilty or bad about that? Not in the least, because it's just how I felt. But that anger does dissipate. It does. And at a a certain point, you do go on with it, and then you have to think about, how am I going to live now? Is it, it it's difficult, is it? Because I I work with a couple of individuals to basically give people permission to be angry and to vent and just to instead of trying to use their head to say, well, I should feel this or I should do that, but just to say, just feel it, just allow yourself to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. And then you know, another really really good therapeutic thing to do is write it down. 
get a notebook and write down uh-huh. every nasty thought you ever had. <laughs> Nobody has to see it. It's completely normal. It's completely private. And you can just get it off your chest. But think about it. Like, who wouldn't be angry right. left with two, two thirds, a third coming and no parents to take care of you? Who, who wouldn't be upset by that? So I think it's just totally normal. Debbie, we have about two minutes, two and a half minutes left in this segment. Your experience mm-hmm. as, as a uh, grief and bereavement counselor, do people mm-hmm. ever use grief as a control mechanism? The contr- you know, I'm I, grieving, I, I'm grieving, and I use it as a sort of like a subconscious ability to control other people. And I mean, it's a horrible question, but... You mean, are people manipulative? Yes, yes. And can they try to, like, use the widow card? Yes, yes, yes. The... Uh, that's a really interesting question and one I've never been asked before, to be perfectly honest with you. I haven't seen it. Okay. I suppose there are people that would, but it's nothing that I've really experienced before. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask that question to. I don't know. You're 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 the professional. <laughs> so we have in just a little bit about a time left. Let, let, let's do yeah. this real fast. Again, the book "Colors of Loss and Healing," an adult coloring book for getting through tough times. Get it on Amazon. The second edition yep. is coming out December 27th, published by Rodale That's Press. Right. Correct. Right. That's correct. And um, here I'm going to put you on the spot again. We have one minute left or about a minute and a half. Yes. Give me the your experience for somebody who's listening to this or may listen to this on the podcast who's walking this mm-hmm. walk right now. What are the three or four most important things that they have to keep in mind? What they have to keep in mind is that grief is not an illness. It is a natural uh, experience, a natural experience. Uh, feeling for losing someone that you love. You need to be active in your healing. You need to reach out. You need to talk to people and do every possible thing that you can to get yourself out of pain. The third thing is there are no rules and there is no timeline. It's going to take what it takes and you'll do it in your own way. Uh, Thank you very much. I think that's that last one is really, I think, very, very, very crucial. There is no paradigm. There is no textbook. Uh, everybody no. is their own guide. Debbie Derman, grief and bereavement <laughs> counselor here. Um, your website, real fast, if somebody wants to look at the website, it is what? DebraDermanPhD.com. Again, the book, Colors of Loss and Healing, an adult coloring book for getting through tough times. Debbie, thank you very, very much for being with us on this segment of uh, Boomer Generation Radio. Continue good luck, success, happy new year, and to all of you, stay safe. We'll be on a repeat next week because of the holiday, and um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care, everybody. Have a good week, and most of all, stay healthy, stay safe. Take care. Thanks again, Debbie. You're welcome. Bye-bye.